I certainly want to take this opportunity to thank you for the hospitality, the gracious, gracious hospitality that uh, you've afforded my wife Muriel and I. It's been a, been a wonderful afternoon, and even though um, you're up here for the third time um, in a few short hours to uh, speak, We've been energized by our fellowship with you. We thank you for that. 41 years ago, I began my ordained ministry in the Christian Reformed Church. And as I look back on those 40, 41 years, there, there are, I think, any number of things, um, trends, um, that one sees within the church within the broader church scene. I've had conversations with some of you who have seen those far better and more clearly than I have. But I suspect that, um, and I've shared some of those kinds of things in the talks this afternoon, we live, of course, in what's called or known as the postmodern age and I think that some of the characteristics of that age have affected, as I said, the church as well. Certainly the um, rejection um, of, of, of truth, of absolute objective truth, as I shared earlier this afternoon. And, um, and that has insidiously come within the church as well. We live, I said too, within a pluralistic society which um, gives high scores to the virtue called tolerance. And all of those who see um, um, truth in terms of the word that God has given to us are looked upon often as those who are bigoted and narrow-minded and, and, and therefore the church has tried to avoid that kind of thing and, and, and has really kowtowed and surrendered something of what I believe God has given to it to maintain in this world. Another trend I see is, is that of moving from a, a sense of corporateness, the corporate body of Christ. Uh, we were remarking in the um, narthex just before we came in for the service this evening, um, sort of talking about um, how to speak Southern in terms of y'all or you all. Uh, and I remark that uh, Paul was a Southerner because the pronouns he used are plural pronouns. Um, but again, one of the trends has been to individualize those and to see, you know, a, a Jesus and me kind of a, a Christianity rather than a corporate body of Christ as sisters and brothers together. But I think that all of those sort of filtered down into what I'm afraid is one of the um, most dangerous trends that I see over these past 40 um, years. And, and, that's, and that's a focusing on, on, on ourselves, on man, a man-centered um, religion. Worship, for example, you know, I, 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 I don't like that style. I, I, I don't like that. I like this. I, 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 
And I say, who do we worship? Who's the focus? And it's God. Christianity, and I'm going to say this again tomorrow morning in, in, in the message, is, 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 is God-centered. It's God-focused. And, um, and that's probably at, at, at the bottom, bottom line of, of, of one of the most, um, one of the saddest kinds of things. Um, and I think that, 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 that we need again to emphasize and re-emphasize the fact that, that God, God is the center of life. This is my Father's world. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone. That God is the one who perseveres with us and who preserves us. And I think that that last link then, we didn't develop it a whole lot, but but to God alone be the glory, and therefore our worship and our lives and, and everything needs truly to, to glorify and to praise him. We turn tonight to what I call the jewel of the Reformation, justification by faith. In 1521, Four years after the Reformation began, Martin Luther was called before the Diet of Worms and was told to recant his reformational beliefs and and teachings. And it was there that he said those famous words we all know, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I don't accept the authority of popes and consuls, they've contradicted each other, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. God, help me. Amen. And with those words, the Reformation not only became firmly entrenched as a part of history, but made a tremendous impact upon history. But just what was it on which Luther took his stand and changed the history of the church and of the world? Well, there are a number of things summarized, as we've said, by Reformed theologians in terms of the solas that we looked at this afternoon. He took his stand on the scriptures alone, the word of God, sola scriptura. That word reveals salvation in Christ alone, solus Christus, by grace alone, sola gratia, received through faith alone, sola fide, and it's all from God and through God and unto God, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. But at the center At the heart of all of this, that which flows from all of it, is the biblical truth of justification. 
If these are the golden links, or the links of a golden chain, then the jewel held by that chain, held forth by that chain, is justification. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, wrote about justification. This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. It is most necessary, therefore, he wrote, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, beat it into their heads continually. In another place, Luther wrote, justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all other kinds of doctrines. John Calvin called justification the main hinge on which salvation turns. Thomas Watson, one of the finest of the English Puritans, said, Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous like a defect in a foundation. And so listen with me for just a bit this evening to that passage from Paul's letter to the Romans, which we just read together from Romans chapter 3, the verses 21 through 31, and I hope you have your Bibles open before you to that passage. This may well be called the classic text on justification. It's a typical piece of Romans. At first sight and at first reading, it, it, it seems a bit complicated. There are some concepts in it with which we may not be that familiar, and yet it's a passage containing a beautiful and powerful and tremendous truth. One scholar called it the most important paragraph in all of God's written word. It's the heart of the gospel. It tells us what God's good news is all about. Now, the Apostle Paul writes a very logical letter. It's the kind of mind that he had. And so it's important for us to see the links, the things that tie Paul's thoughts together, the main outline of what he's saying. The theme of his letter, you know, is from chapter 1, the verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. From there, Paul goes on in chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20 to show the need of every single human being for the gift of God, for this righteousness of or from God. At the end of chapter, the last half of chapter 1, he talks about the depraved. The beginning of chapter 2 about the decent. The end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 about the devout. But they all, the depraved, the decent, the devout, they all need it. Because as Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. It's a pretty dismal picture Paul paints in this whole passage. But then we come to chapter 3 and verse 21. But. Now, Paul says, in contrast to this, this dark, dismal, depressing picture of the preceding paragraphs, here is 
God's good news. The righteousness of God is revealed. God's way of putting people right with himself. And he goes on in the next verses, verses then, to show us exactly what that is and how it happens. The key word is found in verse 24. That sentence begins already at the end of verse 22. For there is no difference, he writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's a summary of everything he's said so far. But now he goes on. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's God's good news. To put it in a word, we are justified freely by a gracious God. But what is that? What does that mean? To be justified. Well, it's a legal term. It belongs to the vocabulary of the law courts. Perhaps the best way to understand the meaning of justification is to understand that it's the opposite of condemnation. Justification and condemnation are both verdicts passed or pronounced by a judge in a court of law. To condemn somebody is to declare that person guilty. To justify someone is to declare that person innocent. And so when God justifies us, he's exercising the role of a judge and pronouncing us innocent, righteous in his sight. Now we need to observe a couple of things. The first is that it doesn't mean to make somebody righteous in the sense of actually producing righteousness in the one justified. It means rather to declare that person righteous. There's a difference, a difference theologically between what's called justification and what's called sanctification, between declaring a person righteous and making a person righteous. The one is a legal declaration, the other is a moral transformation. Now it's true, justification leads to sanctification. Our new status before God leads to a new behavior in the sight of God. But they're not the same, and they're not to be confused. To justify in the New Testament is to declare righteous, to pronounce righteous. It's not to make one righteous. Second, the second thing that we need to note is that to be justified isn't simply to be forgiven. Some, pe some people speak of, of forgiveness and, and justification as if they were synonyms. They're not. Justification includes forgiveness but goes far beyond it. To forgive is, is, is negative, if you will. To forgive is to cancel the penalty of an offense. To forgive is to remit a debt. But to justify is, is positive. It's to declare a person innocent, to declare a person 
right to declare a person righteous. And therefore, to be justified is to be declared innocent by God the divine judge and to be accepted as righteous in his sight. One can think of it, I think, in terms of a question that was put to Abraham Lincoln on toward the end of the Civil War. They asked him how he was going to treat the rebel South. And this is what he said. I will treat the South as if it had never been away. When the New Testament speaks of our justification by God, what it's saying is this. God treats us as if we had never been away. You have the Westminster Confession, with which you're familiar. We have the Heidelberg Catechism. Both meet and overlap very, very well. But within the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 60 says, How are you right with God? And the answer is the most beautiful and most powerful one. Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say that even though my conscience accuses me, of having sinned against all of God's commands and of having never kept any of them. And even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, by sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And then I love the last couple of phrases so that we now stand before God as if we had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Wow. To stand before God as if I had never been a sinner, to stand before God as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Jesus was obedient for me. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is in the, the action of the Father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament. The son runs away. You know the story. He wastes everything that he has. But then he decided to go back because at least his father was a pretty good meal ticket. And so he prepares his little speech, his little apology, one, by the way, that he never really gets to give, because as soon as his father sees him coming, he runs down the driveway halfway across town. He throws his arms around this kid, and he almost knocks him down with his laughter and with his tears. And he never says to the boy, have you learned your lesson now? He never says, now get into the house and apologize to your mother and tell her you'll never do anything as dumb as that again. He says nothing of the kind. Instead, he says, bring out the food, bring out the drink, let's have a party. And they had a great time inviting, inviting all of the neighbors. He treated the boy as if the boy had never been away. That's justification, and that's the message of Paul here in Romans chapter 3 and throughout the New Testament. God's 
good news. But now there's a problem, a bit of an issue. And that's how can God do that? How is it possible for God, the righteous judge, to pronounce unrighteous people righteous? Because if you think about it carefully, the logic should go like this. If to justify means to declare innocent or to declare righteous, then presumably it's only the righteous whom God could justify. I mean, I mean that, was, that was God's very instruction throughout the Old Testament to the judges and to the magistrates of the Jewish courts. Listen to Deuteronomy 25 and verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them, they, that is the judges, are to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. These Jewish judges are told that they must justify or acquit only those who are innocent and to condemn the wicked. In other words, they must declare the righteous person to be righteous. They must declare the guilty person to be guilty. Because that's what God himself does. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 32, and, and, and this is a part of Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple he had built. And he calls upon God to do what he does. Judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving according to his righteousness. Or another passage, Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15, we read, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Or another, just to mention one more, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 23. Woe to those who justify the wicked and take away justice from the righteous. And if you want a reason, simply this. That human judges may not do what the divine judge refused to do. God is recorded as saying in Exodus 23 and verse 7, I will not justify or acquit the wicked. Now, when we, when we understand something of this rather clear and consistent teaching of the Old Testament, we begin to see why Paul's words in Romans seem so shocking. Listen to a verse from a chapter later, chapter 4 and verse 5 of Romans. God is described in the middle of that verse as a God who justifies the ungodly. Just the opposite of, of what we've just heard and seen in the Old Testament. It's understandable, isn't it, that, that the first Jewish readers of Paul's letter would have been shocked? Even even in 
indignant. How can God do what he said in the Old Testament he wouldn't do? More than that, how can, how can God the judge do what in Isaiah he condemned the Jerusalem judges for doing, namely justifying or acquitting the wicked? How can God declare unrighteous people to be righteous? Does God overthrow the, the whole moral order of, 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 of things, turn everything upside down? It's, it's impossible, isn't it? It's inconceivable that God should declare the unrighteous to be righteous. How can he do it? On what ground can he possibly do that? Well, I hope you know the answer to that. There's only one ground, only one ground on which a righteous God can declare the unrighteous to be righteous without on the one hand condoning our unrighteousness and on the other compromising his own righteousness. And that ground is the cross of Jesus Christ. Without the cross, God's justification of sinners would be impossible. Remember Paul's argument up to this point. He says that all human beings are unrighteous. All human beings are guilty before God. Depraved and decadent pagans, chapter 1. Decent, godless people, the first part of chapter 2. Devout, religious people in the middle of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. All three categories of human society have rebelled against their knowledge of what is good and of what is right and are therefore guilty, guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 20 of chapter 3, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that is, by one's own effort, or by one's supposed merit, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And then we come again to verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God. Or as the New King James Version says, the righteousness of God himself has been made known. What is that? Well, it has to do with Jesus. It has to do with what in verse 24 is called the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. In other words, the crucifixion of Christ on the cross was a sacrifice by which God's justice was satisfied. In fact, sins which previously God had left go unpunished in his divine forbearance received now the condemnation they deserved in the person in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the reason, verse 26, that's the reason why God can be just. And at the same time, the one who justifies the wicked who believe in Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, Paul opens that chapter with those well-known words, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. 
because he was condemned already for them. And so justification of the ungodly, justification of the sinner, justification of you and me, it's possible only because of the condemnation of Jesus Christ. Christ was condemned in order that we might be justified. He was declared guilty in order that we might be declared righteous. He took our sin upon himself that we might take his righteousness upon ourselves. There's a divine transference that takes place. One theologian has written, it's the most incomprehensible thing that exists. Justification means this miracle that Christ takes our place and we take his. John Stott commenting on this passage says, God without in any way condoning our sin, purposed to direct against his very own self in the person of his Son, the full weight of that righteous wrath which we deserved. It's enough to bring tears to the eyes of the most stony-hearted that the eternal righteous God instead of condemning us who deserve to be condemned, stepped into our place in Jesus Christ and bore that condemnation himself. There is justification for us only because there was condemnation for him. That's the ground for justification and brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, that's grace. That's grace alone. Amazing, overwhelming grace. How is it ours? How do, how do, how do we stand there? justified. How are we as sinners justified today? It's not by our works. That's the character of popular American religion. To believe that we must do something to deserve God's favor. That God helps those who help themselves. It's very American. But it's totally unchristian. Nothing we can do can persuade God to declare us innocent. All of our strugglings and strivings, all of our good resolutions and intentions, all of our moral obedience, all of our religious devotions, all of our doctrinal rightness, all of our ministry and service and giving, add all of them together, and they couldn't even begin to deserve God's justification of us. Could my zeal no respite know? 
Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. Thou alone. We are not justified by our good works. Even our faith isn't a good work. To be justified by faith doesn't mean that God rewards our faith by justifying us, by declaring us righteous. To be justified by faith alone is another way of saying that we are justified by Christ alone. Faith you see, has no value in and of itself. Its only value, the only value of faith is, is in its object, Christ crucified. More than that, we saw this afternoon that faith itself is a gracious gift of God. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift. From God. So let me conclude with Paul's words in verse 27 of Romans chapter 3. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. But I'll tell you, if boasting is excluded, Praising is promoted. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. For from Him and through Him and unto Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. On behalf of my wife, Muriel, and myself, we thank you. We thank you for the beautiful fellowship relationships that we've had over this past day and this morning as we join together in the worship of God. It's been a delight for us to be a part of your fellowship and of your worship and our worship together of the Lord our God. We turn to the Word of God this morning as it's found in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5. And I read from there the first 11 verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. People of God, what is Christianity? What's the heart, what's the essence of Christianity? Some, some think that it's a whole lot of rules and regulations, a whole list of do's and don'ts, and struggling and striving to keep them. It's a, it's a heavy burden and a weary one, a religious bondage. There are others who think that Christianity is all about ritual, being baptized, making a profession of faith, going to church, coming to communion, reading the Bible, saying prayers. And yet both of these are in fact complete misunderstandings of Christianity. Misconceptions because they interpret Christianity in terms of what we do. We keep the rules. We perform the rituals. But that's not what Christianity is about. Not at all. Christianity isn't about us. Christianity is about God. Christianity isn't about our struggles and our striving. Christianity is about God's grace. And that's its heart. That's its essence. Grace. If we don't understand the grace of God, we don't understand Christianity. Grace is, is the free and unmerited and unsolicited love and favor and mercy of God. Grace is, as we said yesterday, God reaching after his creatures everywhere. Grace is God stooping and seeking and saving and serving. Grace is God pursuing us until he's found us and persevering with us after he has. The Bible calls God the God of all grace. In Exodus 34 and verse 6, he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. The benediction speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace. And so God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is a God of grace. This morning I call our attention to this passage from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, and we looked at that last evening. It's one of the great themes of the Reformation. It means that we have been declared, pronounced righteous by God, that we have been acquitted, that we have been accepted by God. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, writes Paul, here are the consequences. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There are really three things there. Justified by faith in God, we have peace with God. We stand in grace. We have a hope in which we rejoice. But right at the center of each of those, of, 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 of those three, at the heart, there are these words, through whom, that is to say through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now the word grace is used a little differently here from the way in which we've been looking at it so far. Here it isn't so much a characteristic of God, that is to say God's graciousness, as it is a place, a position, a, a, a state into which His graciousness has brought us. We have access into this place, into this position of grace, where God looks upon us with his favor, where we are the objects, the continual objects of his love. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be in a place of grace. Now you'll notice that Paul says two things here. The first is that we have access into this grace. And the second is that having access into this grace, we now stand in it. Let's think about those two for just a few moments. We have access into this grace, Paul says, first of all. And the word that Paul uses here and is translated access is a word that's always used of someone who's brought into the presence of a superior. When a subject, for example, is granted an audience with his king. In our culture, when a citizen is given an invitation by the president. I mean, you can't just drop into the White House, you know. You can't have access whenever you want to. You have to wait until you're invited. And if invited, we'd regard it as a special privilege. Well, that's the word that's used here, access into this grace. The same word is used not only of subjects having been given an audience with their king, but of worshipers having an audience with their God. Back in the Old Testament, when God says to his people at Mount Sinai, I have brought you to myself, we have the very same word. Or in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 7, Moses says to the Israelites, What great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? God so near to us. Same word. 
And that's the privilege Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 5. Having been justified by faith, having been declared righteous, accepted by God, and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, we have access into this position of favor. We've been granted an audience. We've been brought into the presence of the King of Kings. We've been brought near to our God. Before we were condemned, now we are justified. Before we were separated, we were alienated, we were far off. Now we've been reconciled and brought close. Before we were under his righteous wrath and judgment, but now we, now we are in a state, in a place of grace and of favor. Having been justified by faith, Paul says, we are now in that place, in that position before God. We have access to God and to His grace. That's the first thing the apostle says. But then he goes on. Sort of a second stage, if you will. We have access into this grace in which we now stand. And that indicates something permanent. It's a powerful addition that enriches the reality of the whole thing. You see, suppose you were given access to the White House. You don't pack all your luggage and move in and take up residence. You come and you go. Even when the Israelites used this word to speak of their access to God in worship, they had their set times of worship. They approached God through the sacrificial system that he had established. But then they left the tabernacle and they left the temple again. But justified Christians, Christians who have been accepted by God, justified through faith in Jesus Christ, have a, have a far, far greater privilege than that. Something better than an occasional audience with the king. Something better than a periodic approach to God through worship. We've gained access, Paul says, into a state, into a place in which we stand. In other words, we're privileged to stay. We're privileged to, to live in the temple of the presence of God. We're not just occasional visitors. The emphasis is on the permanence of our privilege, on the security of our position. Now that underscores, it highlights an aspect of the Christian life that's very, very important for us to understand, extremely important for our sense of peace and even for our progress as Christians. You see, I suspect that, that, that all of us realize that being a Christian involves a relationship with the living God. But a lot of people Maybe many of us included are, are sort of vague about what that relationship is. Some think it's a rather unstable relationship. 
a, a rather precarious relationship. We imagine that we can, as some put it, fall in and out of grace, much as one might fall in or out of favor with someone. But people who think of grace like that, people who think of the Christian life like that, have never really grasped what it means to stand in this state of grace into which we have been given access. There's some Christian teaching that says that sin on our part as Christians, for example, can again provoke God's wrath and God's anger against us, that it can destroy our relationship with God. They say we can, we can lose our state of grace and be liable again to eternal punishment unless we repent before we die. I don't believe for a moment that that teaching is at all consistent with these words of Paul, which is the word of God in this text. We don't fall under God's wrath every time we sin. We are in a place of grace. We provoke his displeasure, to be sure. We grieve him. We grieve our Heavenly Father's heart. But that's something quite different from wrath and indignation and, and, and judgment. When we sin, even when we sometimes deliberately disobey God, we don't suddenly leave that place of grace and come under His wrath and His judgment again, needing to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior all over again. Not at all. Because we are standing in grace, in, in that place of grace into which we have gained access when we were justified. You see, if we could fall in and out of grace, then, then we'd have to be re-justified again and again and again and again. But, but when God justifies us, you see, he didn't just pronounce us righteous and forgive us and accept us. He also adopted us as his daughters and his sons. Paul goes on to argue that strongly in chapter 8 of, 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 of this letter to the Romans. God takes us who were condemned sinners and he makes us his children and he establishes a permanent relationship with us and nothing and I repeat nothing as Paul writes in Romans 8 can separate us from that love or make us forfeit this place of grace well what happens then when we sin well, let me tell you what usually happened to me when I disobeyed my parents, sometimes with fairly frequent occurrence. I can tell you that things didn't go so well for a while. There was tension there, often as thick as the instruments of parental persuasion that were used. You see, I was born and raised on a farm. I remember one time there was a, a strawberry patch that needed to be picked. It was about a third of an acre. And we were in a hurry, my brother and I. 
And we picked, uh, well, it was just a little bit over a quart of berries. And we said to Dad, that's all there was. Um, but of course, there wasn't, and that wasn't the truth. Well, we were sent to bed with nothing to eat. While I lay there in bed without any supper for a rather long night of incarceration, I didn't stop being my parents' son. They didn't repudiate me from the family. That father-son, that parent-child relationship was unchanged. Only the fellowship was affected until I apologized. Because, you see, the relationship depended upon my birth. The fellowship depended upon my behavior. And so it is with God. When God justifies us, He takes us into His family... And nothing can change the relationship of that father-son, father-daughter relationship within the family of God. God never repudiates the members of his family. Nor can we provoke him to wrath so that he becomes our judge again and ceases to be our father. We grieve but we don't cease to be justified. We don't forfeit that state of grace. Now, there are those who object. They say, ah, but this, this, this teaching, this, this doctrine is simply going to encourage people to go on sinning. I mean, if justification establishes a permanent relationship between God and His children which cannot be broken, well then, hey, we can behave as we want. We can sin as we please. We can do whatever we will. Really? Is that how we argued or argue with our parents? Do we say, because my parents love me with a love that won't stop, because they won't repudiate me, I can behave as, 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 as I like, I can snub them, I can be cocky to them, I can disobey them, I can be rude to them. Is that our argument? Of course not. The logic actually goes in the opposite direction. The logic of love says, because my parents love me so much, I want to return that in terms of honor and obedience. It's exactly with the, the same with the love of God. And if not, if, if we don't respond in loving obedience to God or don't even want to, probably means that we're not children of God at all. For if we are children, children of God, born again, justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we love, we want to respond in love to our Heavenly Father and to express that love by obedience. And when we do sin, don't allow, don't allow Satan to plague you with exaggerated feelings of guilt or make you imagine that you've now forfeited your place of grace or your position as his child. Don't imagine that God is no longer your father, that he's become your judge again. Don't suppose that now you have to receive Jesus Christ all over again, get justified again, start again from scratch. Not at all. 
acknowledge your sin. Confess it. Grieve over it. Repent of it. But thank God He's still your Father. Ask Him to teach you anew to love so that you'll obey. And so let me close with this. Rejoice and relax in the steadfast, continuing love of God. If we are justified by faith, we have, we have peace with God. He's our Father. Justification is acceptance, and God never rejects those whom He has accepted. And we have access. We have access into a place of grace. And in that grace we stand. And because what we are standing in is a place of grace, undeserving favor, we shall stand in it forever. That's what Christianity is all about. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Amen.